Well, hi, welcome to Auckland AV. My name's Rowan, I'm one of the pastors here, and today we get to look at the second section of the book of Judges. The problem with humanity is in its first five letters. Humans. <laughs> We're all creatures of habit, and we habitually let ourselves down and others down all the time. I often get asked, why is there so much suffering in the world? The answer is partly because you and I cause suffering. Every single one of us has caused suffering in the lives of someone else at some time or another. And if we want God to stop the suffering, we're asking Him to stop those who cause suffering, to stop you and me. If you think about it, how often have you done something that you didn't want to do? Something that you've said you wouldn't do? I don't know how many times, you know, I've said, I'm not going to eat another packet of corn chips, but they just look so good and, and we do it. Or the times we, we talk about someone behind their back or we let a loved one down, we... We know how we ought to act, but so often we don't do it and we cause suffering in the lives of others. There are other times when we know what the right thing to do is, but we just don't want to do it. I can't help but wonder if that's exactly how the nation of Israel felt as we get to the next section of the book of Judges. We hear about what is happening as these people have entered into God's promised land and the way they live with the nations around them. Listen to chapter 3 verse 7. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. Despite Israel's history, despite God's promise to make them a great nation and bringing them through the Exodus and giving them the land and blessing the world through them, God's people chose to follow the false gods of the surrounding nations. They weren't forced, they weren't tricked, but they willingly turned away from God again. They put something else at the center of their lives, someone other than the God who had saved them. Now, I don't know your history. I don't know where you're at here today at all. But my hunch is that all of us can identify with Israel at this point. All of us have at times put something or someone else in the center of our lives other than God. Though many of us know truths about God, whether that's just from a gut feel that He exists through to a conviction that, that Jesus is God the Son, we can easily lose the sense upon our hearts of the reality of the God who loves us. We often know that there is someone out there, but we, we don't taste or see or feel Him. He's not in the, the same tangible way that we do the things around us, the, the false gods that we so often worship. And so we end up going with what feels good and with the immediate. But that's where we come across the effects of this problem. So here's the thing. While it's common and even understandable, maybe even defendable from our point of view to, to live for someone or something else other than God, it is phenomenally dangerous, both in this life and the life to come. Look at what happens to God's people, the ones He saved and brought out of Egypt in verse 8. The Lord's anger burned against Israel and He sold them to Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Narahim. And the Israelites served him eight years. This section of Judges is a great piece of literary work. There's all sorts of things going on in the style and tone of the text. And there's a joke going through this whole section. And it's, it's going to be incredibly funny. But one thing not to miss in this joke is the seriousness of the consequences of rejecting God. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. He, he sold them to a foreign king. Sometimes in our family, we joke about selling our kids or maybe just their kidneys. You know, when they misbehave, you can send them off. But, but this is no joke. Kushan Rishathaim, 
is his name. It's a huge name and it's not found in any other records throughout human history. There's no one with that last name that we've come across, probably because the name means double wickedness. Now, what the writer of Judges is saying here is that because of their rebellion against God who'd promised them blessing, Israel was subjected to serve this king of Cushan, of, of double wickedness as slaves for eight years. Well, they couldn't do anything to get rid of him as king. They couldn't get rid of him. The thing they could do was record in their history the way that we do things. You know, the playground tactics when we slur someone's name. I remember growing up, we had a teacher in primary school. She wasn't the nicest of teachers. We used to call her the dragon lady. Gave us a little sense of power. You can kind of hear the snigger of the Israelites every time they read Kushan of double wickedness. <laughs> That's kind of what's going on. It's a little bit of a, we're poking fun at him. And what it shows is, well, there's a serious aspect to the judgment of God. And there is here. God doesn't take away your humor when you belong to his people. But here's the warning. Here's the poetic justice. Those who choose to serve foreign gods are made to serve foreign tyrants. Those who choose to serve foreign gods are made to serve foreign tyrants. You want to ignore the true and living God? You think there's a better ruler than him? You think that your rules are better than his rules or your plans are better than his plans? Go for it and see what a joke our lives become. Because what Israel quickly find is that the object of their worship, the object that seemed to promise so much freedom, always, always ends in slavery. You kind of see that today, don't you? You think about the things that people worship and, and, and give their lives for, whether that be you know, popularity or comfort or drugs or alcohol or sex or money or security, whatever we place in that ultimate place of, of worship in our lives, we live for, we, we kind of become enslaved to. In 3 verse 9, the Israelites cry out. But did you notice how long it took them to cry out? Nearly eight years of slavery to this God of double wickedness. Then they finally decide after eight years of stubborn stupidity to call out to the God who made them. But here's the thing to note. While their cry was slow in coming, God's response was quick as a flash. The mercy of God, the God of the universe, isn't some kind of cruel or sadistic dictator. He doesn't take pleasure in our suffering. He shows his mercy. The God of the universe is a loving God. And he's the God when we, when we cry out and when by our own stupidity we get ourselves into trouble, he's eager to have us back. Not just to fix our problems, but to have us come back into right relationship with him. Despite what we've done, despite our own stupidity, the God of the Bible, the God of human history, is a God who loves his people and ready to love him in an instant. <laughs> One of the great reminders of the book of Judges is, oh, we might feel like we're too far gone. We might feel like we've done so many stupid things. But here's the thing. God loves you because he made you and he's merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. In a funny sense here, we actually see that God's judgment is mercy. If Israel hadn't experienced the slavery of this tyrant, they wouldn't have seen how spiritually enslaved they were and what judgment they were facing forever if they didn't come back to their God. See, even in his sending of judgment, God refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in their sin. Serving Kushan of double wickedness doesn't sound like salvation to us, and it's not, but it 
forces God's people here to loose their grip on the things they so willingly worship. So in his mercy, God sends judgment from the king of the other nations. Judgment, it's kind of like those smelling salts in boxing. You know, if you've seen the movie Rocky or any other boxing kind of movies where the boxers kind of knocked out and they get a, a thing of smelling salts and they kind of wave it in front of their nose and, whoa, it smells so strong. It kind of, whoa, brings them out of the world that they were totally oblivious to beforehand. Well, that's what's going on with the judgment of God. He's, he's kind of giving Israel the kick in the pants they need to wake up. Sometimes God's judgment is the kick in the pants. We need to hear, we need to look at that he hands us over to the stupid things that we do for a time and brings us back. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so we may not be condemned with the world. God's judgment is seen as discipline. He wants us to to win the fight, to trust him to the end. And so judgment comes. But so does God's deliverer, Othniel. We meet our first judge. Come with me. Judges chapter 3, verse 9. So the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Now here, we have our first picture of a judge. Now, the book of Judges is about judges, and this is... A judge is not a guy with a wig and a kind of hammer sitting in his courtroom. Oh, what's going on here? A judge is, is, is a deliverer, a warrior, a leader that the people need. And if there ever was a model judge, it's the first one we meet, Othniel. He's the pinup boy of the book of Judges. Like if you wanted to be a judge when you grew up, when you were a kid, you'd have a poster on your bedroom wall of Othniel. And it would say, Othniel, son of Kenaz. Right? How much keener can you get than the son of Kenaz? He's, he's the pinup boy. He's from the tribe of Judah. Now, that's the most successful tribe, the good tribe. He's got the right family heritage. He marries Caleb's daughter. Now, Caleb was one of the who's who of Israel's leaders. It'd be, be like marrying a prince. You know, everyone would be like, wow, this guy is really in the right family. Othniel is, is a warrior leader. He's got skills. But in contrast to the enemy, led by the, the king of double wickedness, Othniel is the doubly good judge. He's the model judge. And God's spirit comes on him and God is with him and he saves the people and brings peace for 40 years. Now, it's interesting just to note here the the spirit coming upon him. What is that? Well, it's interesting to note a difference between the way the spirit of God acts in the Old Testament and the way he acts in the New Testament. See, in the Old Testament, God sends his spirit on really just one leader at a a certain time. Not on everyone, just the one leader and for that time and to lead God's people. It's literally the Lord's anointed. That's what Messiah means. The king is anointed. So they have the spirit of God. But in the New Testament, God sends his spirit on all the people who trust in Jesus as a pouring out to say God is with them. There's a significant difference in who God gives his spirit to between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in Psalm 51, when King David says, um, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, he's he's not saying, oh, don't, don't have me lose my salvation. He's saying, please don't remove me from the position of Israel's leader. That's what it meant to have the spirit on you. You were God's anointed leader for that time. And that's why the judges were anointed with the spirit of God. 
But in the New Testament, we need to make sure as New Testament Christians that we understand that when we read the Old Testament, we don't understand the Spirit coming in a, in a New Testament way. The Spirit comes upon someone in the New Testament when they trust in Jesus. Uh, but in the Old Testament, it's not an everyday occurrence. We can't read that psalm and apply it to us and say, Lord, please don't take your spirit from me. It's very different. It's very different. So in the Old Testament, God's spirit came upon people to lead God's people. But in the New Testament, we see that God's spirit comes on us as we trust in Jesus. Well, the writer of Judges tells us that peace reigns for 40 years. They experience peace from physical oppression Peace from the self-inflicted spiritual oppression of idolatry, which was the thing that had caused the physical oppression in the first place. Israel's return to a united obedience of the Lord God. Things are good. And it's important to note here that what we see in Judges is also true of us today. It's not only God's judgment that gets us back on track, but it's also enjoying God's mercy. Uh, the joy of rest for 40 years should have pointed Israel to the God who's giving them that rest, shouldn't it? That's the way God prefers to, to act towards his people, to, for them to act in line with him. It's the type of God he is. He wants to give rest from enemies, rest from attack, rest from oppression. The God of the Bible is a God like no other. He's a God full of mercy. Now, mercy is this idea of not getting what we do deserve. God doesn't give us the punishment that we deserve, but gives us forgiveness. Imagine what life would be like if I really understood and let sink in what God had done for me, the mercy he'd shown me, how different I'd live, how pathetic those things I so often long to worship would look. But here's the other thing this passage teaches us. We can't force or fabricate renewal. It wasn't the people's strength or even Othniel's strength that saw the Israelites be saved. The only thing Israel did was cry out to God for help. God is the one who brings restoration and revival. The peace of enjoying serving God instead of slaving miserably for the false gods comes only through God's saving action. We can't force renewal. We can't fabricate revival. Sometimes we think, you know, we slap some slick graphics on a screen and do some songs awesomely and pretend everything is brilliant and that'll change the city. Come, come to God, come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. That won't change people's lives and hearts. What we need is God to bring people to his son so they might see that Jesus is the king, that they need forgiveness, that I need forgiveness and you need forgiveness. Here at EV, what we're on about is seeing people come to know God and His Savior, Jesus. We're on about revival and renewal. That's what we're longing God would use us to bring. And in order to see that, we need to be prayerfully dependent on God. We've got a God who's itching to hear our cry, who, who doesn't delight in the death of a sinner, but wills those who trust Him, those who cry out to Him to be saved. So I want to encourage you to pray, to cry out to God. Don't sit in your stubbornness and say, no, I'm not going to go to him. I'm going to stand back. Cry out to God for your salvation and cry out to God for the salvation of this city that he might see renewal and restoration. But the unfortunate thing here in Judges chapter 3 is that this section doesn't end with peace, but death reigns. Have a look, chapter 3, verse 11. Then the land was peaceful for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. The Israelites again 
did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Our model judge, the, the judge's pinup boy, he was not enough. The people of Israel would need another spirit-led leader to deliver them from themselves and the fruits of their idolatry. That's when we meet Eglon and Ehud. See, the results of Israel's rebellion is that they were handed over to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, this is one of the key parts of the Bible to show that, that God has a sense of humor. We're meant to laugh at this whole episode. It's incredibly funny. But there are two things that aren't a joke. The suffering of Israel and the military power of Eglon. We see in verses 13 and 14 that Eglon convinces two nearby nations, the Amorites and the, so the Ammonites and the Amalekites, to, to join forces with him. They attack Israel and defeat Israel. They take possession of the city of Psalms, Palms. In Jericho, right? The city of Palms is the key place. It was the first city Israel defeated as they entered into the promised land. Then get this, Israel served Eglon 18 years. That's no joke. Imagine you're in your 20s right now, right? You're not going to be free of slavery till you're 40-something. You're in your 40s. You're not going to have any freedom from slavery for, until you're 60-something, right? This is not light, it's, it's, it's not something small. Turning your back on the creator of the universe is, is significant. The consequences for rebellion against God are far, far from trivial. And the story of Israel shows us that time and time again. We need to hear that. Well, Israel again cry out to God. It's hard to know if they're truly sorry for what they've done or they're just in pain. I mean, it's taken them 18 years before they cry out to God. But no sooner they cry out that God listens. And that's when we meet Ehud, the Benjaminite. Now, if Ehud had a theme song, it would be like the Mission Impossible theme song. You know, right? This guy is smooth. He's unexpected, uh, unexpected. And he's kind of a deceptive assassin. He gets the job done and, and he does it alone. He doesn't need anyone else. He's sent in by greater powers as an instrument to bring the peace, and he's totally undercover. You can see it's Mission Impossible all over, right? He's not one of the Israel's great known warriors like Othniel was. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you don't expect a leader from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's like the little brother tribe of Israel. And here's the thing, Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. Here's the irony. The one from the tribe of the son of my right hand is left-handed, right? The right hand throughout scripture is always a symbol of power. God swears by his right hand. He tells us in, in um, Psalm 16 that his eternal pleasures are at his right hand, that his chosen one sits at his right hand. You fought with your right hand. It was all about your right hand. But literally Judges 3.15 says that Ehud was unable to use his right hand. Not just that he was left-handed, that he couldn't use his right. He's probably disabled in his right hand and he would have been considered ineffective. No one would have looked up to him or naturally chosen him to follow. And yet God has chosen a left-handed man from the tribe of the son of my right hand as his choice. And the writer of Judges slows the scene down. Um, Ehud makes himself a sword. It's about the size of a foot-long Subway sandwich, right? And just about as pathetic as using a foot-long sandwich as a sword. He straps it to his right thigh. Why? Because that's where you pull a sword from with your left hand. And, and no one checks the right thigh. Who would have thought of that? Everyone's right-handed. We don't check 
the right thigh, you check the left thigh when you walk into places. Ehud is unexpected. He's, he's the one from the tribe of the right hand. He's got a deformed right hand. He couldn't be a warrior. He's a joke. So they send this left-handed son of the right hand to carry the tribute to King Eglon. Now, tribute was like an oppressive tax. Uh, The spoils of Israel's labor are delivered up for the king to feast himself on rather than let Israel have them. And feast himself is absolutely what he did. The next thing we hear about Eglon is that he's an extremely fat man. If, if, If you know the Star Wars kind of trilogy and thing, he's like Jabba the Hutt. That's the kind of picture, this big kind of massive man. The author wants us to laugh at Eglon, at his fatness. And, and it's, it's comic genius because his fatness comes from eating the spoils that Israel should have received themselves. He's taken everything that was Israel's and taken it on himself and overflowing with fatness. He's been taking their blessing. And while God has used Eglon as an instrument of judgment on Israel while they rebelled against him, God won't let him get away with feasting on Israel's blessings any longer. God will demand his blessing back in a way that shows what he thinks of those who try and rule the world apart from him. Here, God's got something to say about human kings and their power and their military prowess. The audacity to think that they are in control of one square centimeter of this planet. (laughs) It's a joke. It's a joke to the creator of the universe. The psalmist records God's view of people who think they are in control in kings. He says this in Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rebel and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. While to Israel, Eglon was a powerful king. As soon as he meets God's anointed, he's a blubbering mess. Ehud comes and delivers the tribute with those that are from Israel to the king. And then he turns back uh, and, and walks away. And then on his own comes back. He walks in or up to the king and plays to his inflated ego. I've got a secret message for you, O king. And the king, Eglon, he's like, oh, this is special. Ooh, send away my guards. He's this kind of picture of this, this bumbling king who's, who's oppressed them, but is, 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 is over them, but is not really knowing what he's doing. And then he sends away all the guards because he wants to hear this secret, a secret message. Ooh. And so then the action slows down even more, blow by blow. Eglon stands up and you can kind of picture the fat wobbling as he waddles towards his deformed left-hander unexpectedly he kind of goes I want to hear the message and as he gets closer Ehud reaches with his left hand in verse 21 takes the sword from his right thigh and plunges it into Eglon's belly even the handle went in after the blade and Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly and Eglon's insides came out (laughs) literally the dung came out that's what the Hebrew says there is poo everywhere Here is what God thinks of this mighty and powerful king. Poo everywhere. The story is there is only one God and he controls everything. There is only one king and any attempt to stand in the place of God will not end well for that person. Ehud escapes. But the embarrassment doesn't stop with poo everywhere. The writer tells us that the guards are standing outside Eglon's room 
and they're kind of standing there beyond the point of awkwardness, assuming probably based on what they can smell that Eglon must be relieving himself. Verse 24. By the time they open the doors, they see their Lord dead and Eglon is, and Ehud is long gone. Now, Israel at this point, the nation of Israel, are just as unaware of what's going on as the guards outside Eglon's palace. Ehud sounds the blast of the war trumpet across Israel's camp and the Israelites come running. What is this? And then they take the Moabites and knock them out. Verse 28. Ehud says, follow me because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day and the land had peace for 80 years. God gave his people salvation. It was God's work and through an odd saviour. And this all paves the way for us for another unexpected lefty. The book of Judges sets up for us these types of leaders where you're looking for a leader and we come across another unexpected person in the scriptures, one who no one thought would do what he came to do. When this judge came, Isaiah wrote of him this, Isaiah 53 verse 2. He had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. This Judge and Saviour achieved his victory all alone on behalf of his people. And like Ehud, he, he crushed his people's enemies through his own weakness, through death. All the judges from Ehud onwards point us to a Saviour who, who don't use deception like Ehud. They point us to a Saviour who don't need assistance like Deborah and Barak. They point us to a Saviour who is not full of selfishness like Gideon was or careless like Jephthah or have a hint of sexual weakness like Samson. The judges point us to a saviour that is in every way as flawless as Othniel appears to be on the pages of Judges. And what God is showing the world is that his salvation won't come in a Hollywood way at all. It'll come from an outsider born in a manger through weakness, not through what the world calls strength, but through defeat, not what the world calls victory, through folly, not what the world calls wisdom. Whatever you do, do not make the mistake that Eglon did as he looked at God's chosen deliverer and laughed. The Apostle Paul looked at Jesus in the first century and he initially responded like Eglon. He, he was set on his own mission and ideas, but then everything changed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says these words, For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul had seen Jesus. And while Jesus looked like just a Galilean carpenter, someone from Nazareth who, who really wasn't anything much, he was convinced by his life, his death, and his resurrection, that he was God the Son, the Saviour who'd come to save the world. His passage in Judges points us to the greatest Saviour ever, Jesus. I mean, isn't it true that for some of us right now, life is like these wild and uncontrollable days of Judges? 
We're in the depths of relational warfare between friends or family and colleagues. We're on our own hell-bent drivenness to be lured by the things of the world around us. We're so much like Israel. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to confess that life left to ourselves is a mess. But here's what blows me away. Jesus, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the perfect, holy and powerful and awesome God, the one who makes every other king and power uh, and pleasure look like a joke. He came and dealt with our messiness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus faced the just anger and penalty of God for what we deserve. He took the rap for our messiness. He didn't just lead us on a way through a certain time to then at his death see us return back to where we were before or worse off. But he died our death and rose to give us life. Today, our bondage doesn't consist of being under the power of Moabites or fat kings or physical or economic or civic oppression. That's not what our battle is, even though those things exist. Death is our enemy and sin Our rebellion against God is its instrument. But Jesus has defeated them both. In Jesus, we can laugh in the face of death because its power is gone. It's just pretend and its pompous parading is dealt with because life after death is ours for those who trust in Jesus. Life that does not end. We get to experience life and salvation and forgiveness and the joy of being washed clean and experiencing the mercy of God. The only tragedy in our story will be if having this Savior, we fail to cry to Him for help. Israel for so long waited to cry out to God. Don't let that be your mistake. Don't let that be your mistake today as you think about how you live, as you think about who you put as in that prime position in your life. Don't make the same mistake Israel did and not call out to God. Call out to Him today to trust in His Son. Well, why don't we pray together now that God would help us to see Jesus as He really is and that we would follow and trust Him all the days of our life. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that You sent a leader, a leader whose death did not return us to our own stupidity and rebellion, but whose death secured for us life forever. We confess that so often we put so many things in your place. We seek satisfaction and comfort and pleasure from the things of this world rather than the God who has made so many good things and and, and seeking them in the way that you've given them to us. We have rejected you and we deserve your judgment. Please forgive us for turning our backs on you, for not living with Jesus as our King and help us to put Jesus in the center of our lives as the one who is the King, that we would trust him, that his death in our place has paid the price for our sin and that his resurrection shows that he is the King. Help us to trust him and live for him while we wait for Jesus' return. We pray this in his great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.